All right, welcome back. Volume's still good online. Yeah, good. In person, you can hear me all right. Good. All right, so Susan and I both thought we'd share a few thoughts around, you know, this topic from Memorial Day around remembrance. I wanted to focus in on just the experience of grieving and how we can work with grief in a way that allows it to expand beyond that. The personal contraction is often so painful. And then Susan will talk more about the gifts that we, we still carry from those loved, those we have loved who have passed. Now, when we start to approach this topic of grief, we have a wide range of stages in the room. People who have lost people very recently, the last year, the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, wherever it might be. And the grief sometimes comes up in these big wells. Sometimes it's just this kind of almost a sweetness that flows in the background. Sometimes it becomes overwhelming. It becomes more than we can hold or, or bear. And so I want to offer a few words, particularly when it's that kind of overwhelming quality of grief and how, how we can work with it, at least one, one way. Because it's so helpful and important for us to learn to grieve in a healthy way, to allow ourselves to really feel that loss, to feel the impact of it in a way that allows our hearts to actually deepen and mature in that process versus being shattered or overwhelmed. Because grief that's not felt, that's kind of denied or pushed away, starts to become debilitating. It starts to have this undercurrent they're always trying to fight away. And then we have another grief come up, another loss in our lives. They can feel like this dam that we've been carefully trying to hold back starts to burst. And we feel all the griefs, all the losses that we have not been able to feel. Grief has its own timeline, its own way of, of working through us. And at the same time, we, you know, we learn how to still tend to it, to allow some level of, of openness, of inquiry around it. But opening in a way that doesn't wash us away, that doesn't become overwhelming. When I was working with <clears throat> grief a little while, a while ago, actually, this image came to mind around this, this patience that grief often takes. I was teaching at IMS. And if you've ever been there, it's, there's all these old fields that farmers had plowed and cultivated. And they took all the stones from those fields and made walls around them, you know, to kind of define the boundary. And the way I imagine that each year, so they would till the, the soil. And then when the frost would come, new rocks would come up out of the, the depths. And they would take those rocks out. And then over the years, that soil became very just fertile and smooth, and all these rocks have been taken out. And so I often think of grief in that way, that we may have the initial wave of it, the initial pain of it, and opening to it is like seeing a rock and carefully setting it aside, attending to it. But if it's over time, new grief, new rocks come out, new places that we get stuck. And so learning to do this in a gradual way and, and not to turn away. One thing that makes grief difficult to hold is the personal pain that we have around it. It's so, it hurts so much. It's such a painful thing to lose someone that we care so much about. 
is a contraction around that, that very personal pain. So as Dharma practitioners, there's a way that we can start to open what can holds that, the container that holds it. So I want to share a story from the suttas. This one is called Skinny Gotami and the Mustard Seed. This is actually was written a way of describing this, this woman's uh, process toward awakening and how she worked with grief in this way. So her name was Gotami Tisa, but because her body was very skinny, she was called Skinny Gotami. When she went to her husband's family, she was scorned and called daughter of a poor family. Then she gave birth to a son. And with that arrival of the son, she was treated with respect. But that son running back and forth and running all around while playing met his end. Because of this, sorrow to the point of madness arose in her. She thought, before I was one who received only scorn, but starting from the time of the birth of my son, I gained honor. These relatives will now try to take my son in order to expose him outside in the charnel grounds. So at that time in India, bodies would be put outside to, to decompose. So under the influence of her sorrow to the point of madness, she took the dead corpse upon her hip and wandered into the city from door to door, from one house to another, pleading, give medicine to me for my son. People reviled her saying, what good is medicine? She did not grasp what they were saying. So her grief was so much that she couldn't, she was the denial of the grief, denial that her son is no longer alive. And then a certain wise man thinking, this woman has had her mind deranged by her sorrow for her son. The Buddha will know the medicine for her. And she said, mother, having approached the fairly awakened one, ask about medicine for your son. So she went to the Vihara at the time of the teaching of the Dharma and said, blessed one, give medicine to me for my son. The master, seeing her situation, said, go, having entered the city, into whatever house has never before experienced any death, and take from them a mustard seed. Takes from them the mustard seed, the most common, one of the most common spices. Very well. Sir, she replied, and glad of mind, she entered the city and came to the first house. The master, the Buddha, has called for a mustard seed in order to make medicine for my son. If this house has never before experienced any death, give me a mustard seed. And they replied, who is able to count how many have died here? Then keep it. What, good, what use is that mustard seed to me? And going to a second and third house, her madness left her. And her right mind is established, thanks to this, these teachings of the Buddha. And she thought, this is the way it will be in the entire city. By means of the Blessed One's compassion for my welfare, this is what will be what was seen. And having gained a sense of spiritual urgency from that, she went out and covered her son in the charnel ground. She uttered this verse. It is not just a truth for one village or town. Nowhere is, is it a truth for a single family, but for every world settled by gods and men. This indeed is what is true in permanence. So then she went to the Buddha and said, the Buddha said, have you obtained Gotama, the mustard seed? Finish, sir. 
is a matter of the mustard seed, she said. You have indeed restored me. So this very powerful story, you know, this woman is, is out of her mind with grief. The grief is way too much for her to hold. Something so dear to her, her only son is, has died. And not able to let go of her son, she goes trying to find some way to restore him to health, and even though it's hopeless. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, says, connect, find someone who's never had loss. This simple story connects us when we're pain is so, when so gripping, so strong, we sometimes feel like we're the only ones who have ever lost someone. We're the only ones who've lost our husbands or our wives, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends. And in that, that isolation of, of thought and belief, the pain becomes magnified, becomes more than it can, we can hold. I was, Years ago, Rodney Smith did a, a year-long class on death and dying as, as a spiritual practice. He had these very kind of um, engaging homework exercises. So this is my, my version of this, this story is we went to, I went to a graveyard and the idea was to look at the, all the gravestones. And this is a time in the class in this year-long process. We start to really feel just the heaviness of loss, the heaviness of death and our own mortality, the death of all those around us. And the instructions were to look at all those gravestones and reflect on all the tears that was, were shed for each of those people who have died. And as I did that, I started to find this interesting process instead of this narrowing focus that just me, just me is feeling this to realize the same sadness I'm feeling was felt by this person their relatives. This other person had relatives and loved ones who grieved their loss. And they're reflecting across the world, how many graveyards, how many people have died and how common it is, how universal it is to experience this loss. And as I did that, it was very surprising to me to feel that grief, that contraction start to open up, that the heart started to open up into this expanse. And I was just walking around through our department store afterwards and felt a, a sense of intimacy, a sense of connection with complete strangers. Because I knew the grief that I have, am feeling, they too have felt that or will feel that. And in this way, the practice starts to take us from that deep personal pain into realizing each one of the people here in this room have lost people and will lose people. Even ourselves will be grieved when we pass away. And that broadening out, it's not so hard to, to bear, not so hold, hard to hold. We realize we're not alone in this. We're not alone in, in this loss. So thank you for um, your kind attention. And now we'll switch to Sue's. So just give us a moment to switch our mics. I love that, that mustard seed story and hearing the entire story was so beautiful. Such a good reminder. Um, I'm going to bring it back down to the personal. For those of us who 
have um, experienced that grief of losing someone really close, someone inevitably comes up to you and says that, oh, the person's not really lost. They're still, you're still holding them in your heart. And I remember when Billy died, I was like, well, I know it was well-intentioned, but it really didn't do much for me. Um, And so as I was thinking about this remembrance event, I was thinking about how do we hold our loved ones in our hearts? How do we keep them kind of a sense of them alive? And I started to think about the gifts that these people in our lives have given us and how when we take those gifts and really make them our own and live with them in our lives, and then for those of us who are on this Buddhist path, often these gifts really become integrated into um, the teachings. I recently learned about a teaching called the Sampada Sutta. It's about five kinds of losses, relatives, wealth, and through illness, and then morality and view. And while this teaching, when I was reading it, it was more about making sure that we were really present with the awareness of these losses. Um, I thought they would also be a, be a helpful way to frame um, my sharing about um, loss tonight. Certainly these first three of relatives, wealth, and through illness are all connected to impermanence that we've been studying these months. And the last two, that of morality or an ethical life and right view, are things that we really can do something about so that they're not a loss. And we do that, you know, through our, our practice and how we live our lives. I want to share two stories about the gifts that I've been given and how they connect with these um, teachings about morality and right view. Tonight is, today is the 40th anniversary of the death of my sister, Nancy Kay. She was six years older than I am. And as we grew into adulthood, she was my very best friend. I consulted her on every decision, big and small. We laughed together, cried together. We'd complain about our mother together, as sisters do. And we planned our lives together. She was born with spina bifida, which is a disability affecting several systems in the body. She didn't go to regular school until high school, but then she went on and got her PhD in education. She was smart and determined. Her last job was the director of special ed for the city of Berkeley, California, public schools. She was an achiever. I loved her deeply, and she was not an easy person to be with. She believed and she acted out of this belief that she had to fight and fight hard for absolutely everything that she wanted. We're not a very tolerant society today. And if you can imagine 60 years ago, our biases about the disabled were even worse. You know, there was no ADA, there was no accessibility. And as a result of her belief in all the conditions she faced, she didn't take guff from anybody. 
She used her smarts and her ability with language to just cut down everybody to size, anybody who stood in her way. Her default posture was really one of being on guard for the slightest evidence of any kind of discrimination. You know, she was an advocate for the disabled. She marched in her wheelchair for the passages of Americans with disabilities, and she fought for the disabled kids when she was teaching. And while she was always a kind and very supportive sister to me, I mean, just a wonderful big sister, I went through life often embarrassed by her harshness with others. You know, like many of you, we were taught, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And then as women growing up in the 50s and 60s, we were taught that you should be conciliatory and helpful and not too pushy. And Nancy was none of that. She was passionate, pushy, and confrontative. So a couple of years before Nancy died, she and her then teenage daughter and I went. We were on a trip in the Middle East. We went to a museum in a small Arab village. And it was pretty difficult navigating the streets. Nancy was in a wheelchair, but her daughter and I were pretty familiar with how to work a um, wheelchair. Once we got there, the staff had to fiddle with this automated chairlift to get us up to the second floor where the exhibit was. The lift wasn't was an old-fashioned lift. It wasn't very easy to operate. The first person that we talked to didn't know how, what they were doing, and they had to find somebody else to to bring in and make it work. And of course, Nancy was impatient. She was in the face of all the staff people. She was not tolerating their incompetence or for sure not their pity, looks of pity towards her. When we were all done, I don't know why, but for some reason, all those years of embarrassment and discomfort that I had felt with her um, behavior just erupted. My niece, I think she was hiding, but Nancy and I were out in the middle of the street outside this museum yelling at each other. I just, you know, confronted her of being insensitive and harsh, and those people were just trying to do the best they could, and she accused me of ignorance and insensitivity. I had no idea what her life was like in trying to navigate it as a disabled person. We just yelled at each other. And then we started crying, and then we looked at each other, and we told each other how much we loved each other. And afterwards, and for the last, like, 18 to 20 months of her life, we were never closer. And so um, I learned something really important from that and from her. But before I tell you about the gift that Nancy gave me, she also got a gift from that fight. Because she started writing a book on what happens in families when there is a disabled child. I think she finally recognized and heard from me, her beloved baby sister, that she wasn't the only one affected by her disability. Unfortunately, she died before she finished the book. But uh, the work that she did was really important. So the gift that Nancy gave me. It wasn't her determination, although that was pretty amazing, and I've always aspired to follow that. And it wasn't that she stood up for herself, although it was in a wheelchair. No, her gift to me was about the power of love and honesty. 
Because prior to that explosion, we had been pretty real with each other many years before I'd even confessed to her some awful thing I did as a pre-teenager to her, cutting up her clothes and doing bad things. <laughs> but when our emotions climbed to such a peak in that Arab village, the foundation of our honesty and love that we had created was bigger and a container that could hold all of that conflict, all of that hurt. We yelled at each other from our own sense of truth, and we were able to listen to the truth of the other. And somehow in that little village, we came to some understanding of the real truth that both of us were holding. The heart I learned from her is wider and broader and I think wiser than the mind can hold and even than the mind is and that the heart can hold even the most hurtful experiences. Because right next to all that hurt and confusion and our belief that, oh, we're right, was our capacity to listen and forgive and understand. And I've taken that understanding into my life. And I often ask, as my own practice with right view, what does the heart know about what's happening right now? Because sometimes the mind often wants to just remind me of what it thinks is, is right. But the heart has way more wisdom. The other story that I want to share is from my partner, Bill, who I also brought a little picture of him. And uh, we were partners. We were even spouses for 35 years. And he died suddenly five and a half years ago. And there were so many things that I learned from Bill. I mean, he taught me how to drive big garbage trucks and move all kinds of heavy stuff. And he gave me a lot of courage when I was feeling scared. And he taught me how to kind of dream and envision new possibilities. But Bill, um, he knew how the real world worked. He could fix things. He could build things. He knew how electricity worked and plumbing and construction. Now, you couldn't ask him to build you a cabinet because of level, plumb, and square. He only knew how to do two of the three. But everything else, he really understood um, how the real world worked. And he gave of his time, his experience, his materials, I called them his junk, but they were really useful materials, and he gave from his wallet. Whenever we were making a decision about making a donation to a cause, I'd come up with a number and Bill would double it. He loved helping people solve a problem, but he didn't only live his generosity. I saw in Bill how happy being generous made him. He was so joyful when he was helping somebody figure something out. Generosity wasn't just a duty or an obligation for him. It was a real source of happiness. And generosity, in my view, and I think if you read the suttas and the teachings, is one of the essential elements of living a moral life, an ethical life. And I know I'm taking liberties here with a saying, I think it may come from Ajahn Chah, who says that if you let go a little, you have a little happiness. And if you let go a lot, you have a lot of happiness. Well, I'd like to apply that to generosity, because that's what I learned from Bill, 
is when you give a little of yourself, maybe you still have a little bit of that clinging and holding on and hesitation. You only have a little happiness. But when you give wholeheartedly, you have a lot of happiness. So these two gifts are really connected for me to my practice. Checking in with my heart during difficult times, knowing that the mind just is wanting to convince me of the rightness of the thoughts. And often I think we can find real truth in the way things are by checking in with the heart, by bringing up the qualities of kindness and truthfulness, humility and compassion. And then coming from a place of generosity, asking the question, what can I contribute to this moment for the benefit of others? It just seems like that confirms the truth also of what Tim was talking about, of how connected we all are to each other, and that each of us has something to contribute. These months that um, April, May, and June, we're working on the three characteristics of life, of dukkha, anicca, or impermanence, and anatta. And as we've been talking about anicca on Sunday mornings, we've been doing anicca. And, um, you know, it's so connected to loss and remembrance. You know, the fourth recollection that many of us repeat um, that has to do with the how we are of the nature to age, get ill, and die. And the fourth recollection says that everything and everyone that we hold dear is subject to change, and we cannot escape becoming separate from all of them. So for me, this impermanence, it also creates a greater sense of presence with an appreciation for whatever and whomever I'm holding dear. You know, Ajahn Chah has that phrase that says that the teacup is already broken. And it reminds us to treat things and people with so much tenderness and care because their ending is a certainty. It just, we just don't know when. So I reflected on these gifts from my sister Nancy and my partner Bill. I'm filled with so much gratitude. Gratitude that I knew them and loved them. And gratitude that they knew me and loved me. Gratitude for the way they lived their lives and the many ways that they taught me to live my mind. To trust my heart, to trust relationships when you bring honesty and kindness to them, to trust that generosity is really the best way to approach other people and life, to really think about what can we offer for the benefit of others, learning from Nancy to not be afraid to to have conflict in relationships to trust that the relationship itself is strong enough and a big enough container to hold that. So as we break out into small groups, I really hope that maybe my stories helped you think about some of the people who have died in your life. And what are those gifts that you've received from them? And how do those gifts tie into how you live your life? some of the ways that the practice has become really meaningful for you. Certainly the ethical life and right view are very important to me. And and it's what we talk about, you know, all these years of Seattle Insight and all the years of our practice. Um, These gifts that we received, 
we give that we have them ourselves, but then when we integrate them into our lives, we pass them on and give them to others. So thank you for your attention. And now we'll um, ask Adam to help us break out into small groups. We'd really encourage you to stay. Um, it's such a lovely way of sharing in Sangha to stay in these groups. Um, if you really can't, then um, farewell. And thank you for joining us. And we'll see you really soon. Um, but this would be a good time to to leave if you want to so that Adam will know how many people. And then for those of us in the room, you might want to just move some chairs around and create little groups of three. And um, the prompt again is um, to just share a story. If you have a picture, do that as well. Tell about your, your person or your persons and how you live your life with the gifts that they've given you. Hi, so we have some time to have you, if you want to share any of what um, you shared in your group, you know, um, recognizing that keeping the confidence that you're only sharing about yourself. And, um, or if you have any questions about, grief and loss and remembrance and anything we can take folks from online and also here in the room. So we would welcome hearing, please. Beth, do you mind coming up for the people? And you're good at doing this. You know how to do that, don't you? Right. To turn something off. We had a we had a lovely sharing, and one of the the ideas that came out of this uh, was a memory I had about, and I'm not sure if this is a um, a larger Buddhist understanding, but I remember Thich Nhat Hanh talking about uh, the the person who's deceased, their continuation, and how there might be qualities or something about them, their lives that, that um, doesn't die, you know, that continues and that um, can be carried forth. And uh, I think about um, in the Jewish tradition, uh, the, the idea of may their memory be a blessing. The idea that uh, uh, we remember them through our actions and we honor them through our actions. And um that's been very important in, in my life and in, in, in the lives of the people we were talking with. The other thing I wanted to share was uh, um, I was struck by the, the common themes of your, both of your, your, your talks talking about the letting go piece and how the letting go um, uh, can open us up and, and relax us. Right. So that, the process can continue. And I, I do work in my uh, Episcopal church um, in chaplaincy with people who are, um, who are in the grieving process. And I find uh, oftentimes, especially because we do get referred often like right when a death has happened. And there is a, there's a feeling many times that 
like I should just move on with it. I should just get it over with. I should just, because the world has continued. Right. And I should just move on. And um, I've recently started just expressing the idea that um, I, I actually say um, this person deserves your grief. This person deserves you to grieve for them. They deserve to have a witness on this planet um, of their life. And um, just in an attempt to try to um, another way of trying to let relaxation happen a little bit because um, then the process can continue. But I think we, I think in this society, we think we should just like, you know, wash our hands of, of that and move on. And I know my father's been gone for nearly 30 years and I still grieve for him and he deserves it. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Beth. Um, one of the other things that I think those of us who've grieved realize is that grief has its own idea of how long it's going to take. And sometimes you're just driving down the road and have to pull over because you can't keep going. And it's just the way that process is. So I think that's so beautiful what you share with um, folks that you're talking with. Is there someone online who would like to um, share? And you can either put up your hand or just, oh, Iris, hi. Hi, hi there. Thank you. Um, first of all, I wanted to apologize to my two group mates because I inadvertently pressed a button and I left the room before I needed to. And we were involved in a wonderful conversation. Um, so I'm sorry that I missed out on the last minute. Um, the, the, the theme that arose a lot for us was around love. And um, you touched on that so beautifully, Suze, in, in your, your reflections. And the importance of taking in love from those who have loved us and those who have left us and to give love back um, either to their memory or to those who, who are still alive in our lives. And through losing people, really sort of um, understanding the sacredness of being with others and the vulnerability and fragility of life you know, knowing that any of us could die at any moment so that when we are with each other to really treasure that with an open heart. Thank you. Oh. Thank you, Iris. I'll just project a little bit. Yeah, thank you for sharing that sense of, of love and, and interconnection. All right, Sean and Bruce, go ahead. 
Hi, everyone. Um, I Well, our group was wonderful. I'll say that first. It's just really wonderful to have a have a place and a forum to talk about grief and loss. I have a question about um, anticipatory grief. When you have a loved one that has a terminal condition, um, there's grieving that starts before the death. And I, I've been reflecting a lot on this because it's, I'm in conflict about it. And as a, as a practicing Buddhist, I really try to be in the present. But this anticipatory grief is anticipating the little losses that are going to take place along the way until the actual death happens. And it is real. I mean, it's, it's a real experience. And I don't know how to integrate these two things. So maybe you have some wisdom or reflections on that. So I'll, I'll just try saying a few words about, you know, anticipatory grief. You know, so on one hand, it's, it's a blessing because you can see the, there's a preciousness that you can say whatever you would have maybe not had a chance to say, you know, having that, that sense of having those real conversations, having those, um, you know, coming clean things, you know, just having that wide. So the, the relationship feels very much clean and present time. And you can express appreciation that you may not be able to in other times. And in terms of like the, the anticipating the little losses, like this is the last, Memorial Day I'll have with this person, or this is the last holiday or last birthday, all those kind of things. You know, on the one hand, we can go into the, the contraction of it, the contraction of, of that loss and that, that pain around it. Other side, we can look at the preciousness of it. Like Iris was saying that we don't know how many more days we have left, all of us. And to have that sense of bringing that, that aliveness to that relationship. So it's, it's not teaching us how to let go in the midst of it. So just when we start to get too lost in the, the grief part of it before the grief is here, you know, that's, you can, even that can be fine too. You can just feel that the sadness around that, feel the sadness around the loss. And maybe you do a lot of the grief before they, they pass. So I don't know if there's anything that needs to be fixed or changed in it, but just to keep your eyes open to that whole experience. Thank you, Sean. Am I sure anything? Okay. How about back here in the room? All right, come up, Lauren. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, it is. Oh, yes, thank you. Yes. Okay. Well, um, in our group, um, when people were sharing about a special loved one that had passed away, there was this um, um, this essence that would come as they spoke about the person. You know, something would come up, and it was an essence that we could all feel. And I was thinking of this metaphrase from Sri Lanka, which I can't remember the whole thing. 
I, it's how wonderful you are in your being. And I think it's, I'm so glad you're here. Somebody knows the next part, but it's something like that. How wonderful you are in your being. I'm so glad you are here. And it seemed to me that that's the gift and to appreciate people. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother used to say, um, uh, we'd say, mom, everybody likes you. And she said, she'd say, well, that's because I see their virgin spirit. So it's the, mm-hmm. it's the um, essence, how wonderful you are in your being. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, uh, I, I felt that when I'm sure. Thank you, Lauren. We have time for one more before we do our closing um, call and response. All right, go ahead, um, Anastasia. This isn't a question. I just really loved that. Thank you for that. I'm going to think about that. I love your virgin spirit or see your virgin spirit. I don't know if I got it quite right, but I I think I get that idea. Thank you so much. Thank you. So um, Adam's going to put up on the screen this um, It's kind of like a poem. And um, all of the lines, we're, we're getting there. It was developed by a couple rabbis. Thank you. And can people all see that? The typing, the type isn't huge. So I hope we can, everybody can read it. Because we've brought all of our various loved ones into our sangha tonight it's i think it's really sweet that each line is followed by a we remember them so feel free in the the room to join in and online since everybody's in their own homes um can uh say the uh the lines to yourself out loud or or not. At the rising of the sun and at its going down, we remember them. At the blowing of the wind and in the chill of winter, we remember them. At the opening of the buds and in the rebirth of spring, we remember them. At the shining of the sun and in the warmth of summer, we remember them. At the rustling of the leaves and in the beauty of autumn, we remember them. At the beginning of the year and at its end, we remember them. As long as we live, they too will live, for they are a part of us as we remember them. When we are weary and in need of strength, we remember them. When we are lost and sick at heart, We remember them. When we have joy, we crave to share. We remember them. When we have decisions that are difficult to make, we remember them. When we have achievements that are based on theirs, 
we remember them. As long as we live, they too will live, for they are a part of us as we remember them. So we're in with just a little bit of meta. All right, so just taking a moment to feel the warmth of relationship, of connection with the people you spoke to, the people in the larger group. As Lauren was speaking of that quality of the essence of all these people that were we shared their memories. Well, they too are here in the room in some way. In letting the metta, letting the loving kindness just emanate forth to all the people within this call, this room, this (coughs) session tonight, all the people touched by their stories, all the relatives and friends, all the people who are close to their own death, reaching out to them too, as Sean spoke of. all those who are suffering in some way. May your suffering ease. May your heart find a way to to hold this pain, to hold this suffering. May you feel the support of those around you, those seen and unseen. And may the benefit of this practice be shared with all beings. We all learn to open our hearts to take the time needed to grieve. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease.
All right. Thank you all for spending this evening with us and sharing your memories of your loved ones. And thank you, Suze, for all your planning. She did all the planning. I just talked a little bit. So thank you for doing all that. And next week we'll have Trary back and have we do a couple of talks. I'll be back in later in June and have a wonderful rest of your day and, and hold those loved ones in your heart.